Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, March 9th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation, and sometimes across our national borders, to explore American national security issues. We cover a wide variety of topics here on National Security this week. One week week we might cover Belarus, the next we cover transnational organized crime. Today we're going to talk about the situation in Ukraine and other places too, but not in ways that you've likely heard much about in the media. We'll also venture into other crisis or potential crisis areas as part of our discussion. Our guest today will help us to understand the new modern warfare concept called hybrid warfare, which has been used or at least tentatively tried to be used extensively by the by Vladimir Putin in, in Russia. The jury is still kind of out, I think, on how the situation in Ukraine will unfold in the end. But it's clear that hybrid warfare is now kind of front and center as a strategy. We're here now, frankly, at this point in Ukraine with this serious crisis because of the effectiveness of hybrid warfare, or maybe not. We'll see. Depends upon what our guests say to say, have to say to say, and and how it serves, how hybrid warfare serves as a force multiplier for traditional ways of waging war on one's declared enemies. Our first guest today is Dr. Michael Hennessy, who serves as professor of history and war studies at the Royal Military College of Canada which is similar institution-wise to both West Point and Annapolis here in the United States. Dr. Hennessy is the past department head, past chair of war studies, past dean of the Canadian Forces Military College, and past associate vice principal of research and dean of graduate studies at the Royal Military College. Dr. Hennessy was principal author of NATO's Partner for Peace Consortium's Cybersecurity Reference Curriculum. He's also a 12-year veteran of the Canadian military's artillery and infantry. Dr. Hennessy's published works include Strategy in Vietnam, the Marines and Revolutionary War in I-Corps, 1965 to 1972, and the edited work The Operational Art, Developments in the Theories of War. Michael Hennessy was the founding editor of the Canadian Military Journal, which is the professional journal of the Canadian Armed Forces, and served as a civilian lead for the founding of the Canadian Forces Leadership Institute. Dr. Michael Hennessy has also worked on intelligence issues and questions of technology and warfare throughout his career, and he is also the proud grandson of an Irish revolutionary, and I'm going to make sure we ask him more about that story before we finish our show today. Our second guest is Professor Sean Costigan. Sean Costigan is a professor at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies and a senior advisor to the NATO uh, Partner for Peace Consortium Emerging Security Challenges Working Group. He's a principal author of NATO's cybersecurity curriculum and the academic lead for the forthcoming NATO Partner for Peace Consortium curriculum on hybrid threats and warfare. Professor Costigan is widely published in national security matters relating to cybersecurity, emerging security challenges, and hybrid threats. Prior to joining the Marshall Center's faculty, Sean was the chief information officer at the MIT Press. 
professor at the New School University's Graduate Program in International Affairs, the director of strategic initiatives at the Center for Security Studies in Zurich, executive editor at Columbia University Press, and the research associate for science and technology at the Council on Foreign Relations. Professor Costigan is a Department of Defense civilian. He's also a series co-editor for Taylor and Francis's Modern Security Studies series and author or editor of a number of other works, including Terranomics, Cyberspaces, and Global Affairs, and another book called Arming the Future, to name but a few. Professor Sean Costigan and Mike Hennessy, Dr. Mike Hennessy, welcome to National Security This Week. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having us. And uh, Dr. Hennessy, where are you uh, calling in from? We have I'm up on Zoom with both of you. Where are you at this morning, Dr. Right. Hennessy? So I'm, I'm located on the north shore of Lake Ontario in the town of Kingston, Ontario, uh, not far from Fort Henry, which we built to protect from American invasion <laughs> not that long ago. <laughs> and I, I, I suspect winter is still uh, hard upon you up there in Canada. Winter is trying to die. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> And uh, Sean Costigan, where are you at this morning? Uh, beautiful downtown Minneapolis. Thanks, Sean. All right. All right. So you're, you and I are going to be sharing some nice warm-up here uh, after this weekend. Fairly soon. Looking forward to it. So I'm going to highlight for our listeners right up front uh, that uh, both of you, uh, today you're here talking about your own personal ideas and opinions, uh, which are your own, and that you are not serving as an official spokesperson for either the Canadian Armed Forces or the Canadian government, uh, or for the U.S. government or DOD. Is that, that's safe to say, right? Safe yes, to say. Safe Thank to you. Say. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble with your bosses. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Sir. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, let me begin by asking the two of you uh, how you connected and then partnered to start studying this issue of, of hybrid warfare. Can you tell us how that happened? Mike, do you want to take a first stab at this? I was puzzling over that, John, uh, and thinking about uh, Mike and I have worked for roughly a decade now together on a variety of projects around the world. And, uh, when we look back at the cybersecurity reference curriculum, that's really the our, our first interactions. Uh, and uh, Mike, do you want to want to take a stab yeah, at that? That's right. I think we first met about 2014 uh, when I was asked to uh, partake in the discussions about creating a, a reference curriculum. And Sean was on the committee that that I first briefed on how to go about doing that. And uh, we collaborated quite well on that project and had some ideas for future projects and actually agitated. Uh, for quite a long time to have people pay attention to this concept of hybrid warfare. And yeah. only in the past, uh, you know, 18 months did somebody say, hey, we'll fund some of that app. You know, we'll fund a group to sit down and, and put a solid piece of work together, giving us a definitive chapter and verse. Um, so so I was lucky enough, to yeah. yeah, about a, a decade ago to uh, spearhead this effort to create what we call a, a reference curriculum in cybersecurity at, at Mike. Uh, through a uh, mechanism of the in, in Canada came to uh, work with me. And so, uh, you know, from there, that luck uh, created, I think, a rather beautiful partnership that we've been able to maintain across borders and the pandemic, uh, you know, and continue, uh, you know, to do the work that we, we're doing, including the this new hybrid curriculum that uh, we'll be discussing today. But the concepts around it are more the more important than the document. And so I think, uh, you know, John will be asking us, a lot of questions around that, and hopefully we'll have answers. Oh, we've got plenty of questions for you today. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, so your respective careers and backgrounds, uh, what was it about your individual backgrounds that kind of drove you to look at this topic of, of hybrid warfare? What was it about it that, that kind of interested you enough that you wanted to sit down, partner up, and study it? 
Maybe we'll start with you, Sean, this time. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. Thanks, thanks, John. No, the way the way I I think of the work that I do very often is sort of a, a sentinel foresight effort, where I look around and say, I was trained in the history of science, uh, worked in science and technology policy, and so very often I'll follow a, a rabbit trail down where technological change has given us some indication that there's some societal change or or national security impacts, and from that that leads me into a variety of different. Uh, variety of different roles that give me uh, thought as to what, what we might need or where we might have some improvements. And so it was really from that initial impulse, like a lot of the work that I do, where I start thinking about what's changed in technology, what are the national security impacts, does that have uh, some some impact for uh, our militaries or for broadly our partners and allies, and from there, uh, hybrid came top of mind, of course. So there, that's that's my that's my rationale. Okay. And Mike? Yeah, I've always been intrigued and worked on issues like uh, guerrilla warfare, counter-guerrilla warfare, uh, terrorism, counter-terrorism, asymmetric warfare. And, you know, the experience is you got a lot of kind of buzzwords percolating all the time through the system. Yeah. And some of them are worth catching on to and, and, and trying to refine and understand their meaning. And others are problematic and cause confusion and sow discord and so on. So I kind of chase these ideas now and then because it's certainly – you know, teaching my students, they're interested in these kind of emerging concepts. Uh, but as a historian, you also see a wider context of, you know, there's always been promises of change. There's always been, mm-hmm. you know, what what new revolutionary thing is going to transform warfare fundamentally. And uh, you often poke these ideas and realize, you know, there's, there's some real changes, yes, but uh, complete transformation of warfare and all the old historical record gets tossed out. Usually not. So, um it's that kind of that testing function that attracts you to the, exploring these ideas. And, and uh, that's why I d- dipped into cyber. And that's why we picked up on, on hybrid warfare. Yeah. I'd, I'd add there too. It's a, sort of the, the wicked problems that interest us both uh, yeah. that are, you know, these definitional challenges. So where there's a lack of definition, just as there is internationally for cyber, uh, you know, there's this space uh, where uh, confusion might reign or where a variety of, uh, efforts to create clarity might also be be possible. And it's th- those efforts at clarity that Mike and I have spent a, a great deal of time working through. And Mike, or Sean, I should say, let me ask, let me follow up on something you just said. You, you, you used the term wicked problem. Uh, I found, yeah. unfortunately, that not everybody understands the definition of what a wicked problem is. I think those yeah. of us in the you, national security world are pretty familiar with that term. But can you sort of explain that to our listeners? Yeah, or do you have a ready one? I'm I'm, a, I'm, I'm <laughs> eager because that in and of itself is a wicked problem. I mean, I've I've, I've seen so many definitions of them, but it's you know it, it's where there's sufficient complexity uh, that uh, it, it makes definitional problems uh, real and makes inaction a possibility as well because people don't know exactly what to do. So any of these wicked problems might be best explained by some examples. So national security and climate change, yeah, a, a wicked problem. Um, right. Others, but I, I don't, John, if you have a, I'm, I'm all ears if you have one that's a, a great definition. That's, I don't have a great definition. I've always sort of understood it as a problem that's so complex that there's really, it's hard to really get your uh, yeah. head around it because it's so complex. And then <laughs> there's almost, there's rarely a good solution. You know, there's not a, a perfect solution. You're just going to have, choices of what's the, what's the least bad <laughs> solution you can yeah, apply that that's right that's yeah. the way i perceive it too and the the other aspect of it is typically wicked problems at least from the natsec perspective or in, involve whole of whole of government responses and so that's where it's also uh 
adds complexity because you have to uh, how, how who does what and when uh yeah. Yeah, it makes it interesting from my perspective so um yeah I, i've also worked on uh you know years ago on national security and climate change and so that was my first real introduction i'd say to the big issues of yeah, yeah. wicked problems yeah. So. And, and uh, Professor Costin, let me follow up. Your expertise is also in cyber operation and, and uh, cyber operations and emerging challenges. Maybe you could yeah. comment just very briefly, because I'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot more today, uh, on the importance of understanding cyber threats in a in a modern uh, national security environment. Yeah, I know uh, we're going to be talking quite a bit about Ukraine later later on, but I think uh, one thing that I I want to drive home as quickly as possible is that there are things that we can do about cybersecurity. And I, let me just give some practical examples because it may help people uh, as they think about, you know, if you're a small enterprise and you think, uh, Oh goodness, you know, here, here comes uh, a problem in Ukraine or here comes something that may affect my effort or your larger enterprise or an individual. I think there are some, there are practical things that can be done in cyber and cyber has matured enough uh, in my estimation, at least that it's no longer what I would consider to be an emerging field. Uh, but I'll, 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 footnote that and we can talk about that later because there's a distribution problem at the same time which is that it, it's emerging differently in different places and so mm. that that is still the case internationally but so some practical things that may be useful to people that mike and i detail in the cybersecurity reference curriculum and in other works that we've done is you know if you very basic stuff there's a technological layer uh that includes just patching and making sure that you don't keep your door doors open to so, uh, you know, a, a perpetrator of a crime or a nation state or whomever else, this is basic stuff gets overlooked all the time. And so I just want to, you know, reiterate that. But then one thing that I've been talking about quite a bit since, uh, Ukraine kicked off is that, uh, the just practicing your, your plans for emergencies, uh, whatever those are. And, uh, you know, John, I'm sure you're very familiar with these things and you're nodding your head. And I know, Mike, we think about the same things, but it, it's, it's basic stuff like this that gets overlooked until there's a disaster, until there's a problem. And so practice for emergencies, whatever those are, your remediation plans, know who to call, all this sort of basic stuff that keeps you out of 90% of the problem uh, is is what I'd want to talk about in cyber to begin with. Yeah. So, um, Mike, I want to bounce it over to you. I know uh, you have other thoughts on cyber, but I, I'd like to start with the practical, John, because otherwise it becomes you know a, a very theoretical discussion for a lot of people and yeah. people don't know what to do. So Right. Yeah, so just a little broader context to the cyber realm is, you know, the, the fact it's such a, a um, straddling problem. It's um, individuals have to deal with this problem. Uh, companies have to deal with the problem. Governments have to deal with the problem. International organizations have this problem. And, you know, we've, we've observed the kind of development of a lot of coordinating tissue across those those parties. Um, part of that being forced by discussion of people saying, hey, you have to look at this problem. Uh, it's not going to solve itself. Uh, individuals look for guidance. They want authoritative guidance. They know there are companies selling solutions, but is it a problem? Um, the development of things like cyber insurance, you know, a really developing field. How do you, how do you measure this risk? What is the risk? Uh, when does it go? For, when does bank fraud become a cyber problem as opposed to just a problem of fraud? Yeah. And so you've got all these straddling issues. And, and this is kind of that wickedness of the problem. Who's responsible for putting it all together? Right. Mm -hmm. It's not a military problem. It's not a defense department problem. It's not a state department problem. You know, it's what segment of the government is actually responsible for going, you know, comprehensively, this whole threat surface needs to be addressed. Mm. A bunch of people have to sit down and agree who's going to do what. Yep. 
Yeah, that's it's always a, it's a challenge. A, it's an everybody problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an everybody problem. But I think, you know, one of the interesting th- things there that I'd add to is that I think computing technology in general is sneaky technology. And we didn't recognize uh, the sets of risks that and Mike discusses, you know, that how they cross boundaries until relatively late. And that, I think, is tied to notions of progress where we we're very keen to adopt new things and we certainly don't want to be seen as not being you know sufficiently progressive so we're looking around saying by all means install new software install new devices install and make make sure i'm on the cutting edge only to find later that x y or z risks have been run and threats are real and so this is this is where we are and then the question of ownership precisely what mike says is the thing that we're dealing with and that also uh you know feeds into hybrid in some way so it's that Sneaky, and, and you have things like, things. you know, security was an afterthought for the internet. Oh, totally. Yeah. No questions. Right. So, <laughs> I've got a, the I've, illusion of security and, and the realities of it. And, and uh, yeah. they're, they're two different things. And now people are recognizing you need to design security at the start, not after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend of mine uh, who actually was on the show uh, a year ago, uh, who's a computer science professor here at Carleton College. And he has uh, said that same thing over and over again, that they totally, totally did not even consider the issue of security when they were creating the Internet. And, and there's really nothing about it that's designed to be secure. Uh, you'd almost need to to go back to the drawing board, redevelop it all over again with security being the primary driver and then <laughs> roll out an entirely new internet and we can imagine what appetite there is oh, for that. N- none yeah. <laughs> like, given yeah. the difficulties mike and i just had coming up with a an, an internationally acceptable solution for a yeah. definition for cybersecurity, yeah. but nonetheless yeah. <laughs> which we agreed there wasn't one so we made one up <laughs> i think and, uh... that was it that was it out of exhaustion yeah. we just agreed so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Sean Costigan and Dr. Mike Hennessy, and we're talking about the concept of hybrid warfare and how it might be used in today's conflicts. Uh, so, gentlemen, let's let's go ahead and dive into our topic for today. Uh, we're going to hit this in multiple layers, but we're going to talk hybrid warfare. Uh, I think it might be best, frankly... Uh, for our audience, if we if we start by outlining what sort of traditional conventional forms of warfare entail, uh, just to remind everybody what what the old way of doing business was, maybe we start there. Uh, and, and Mike Hennessy, why don't we start with you? What are, what do you think are a good way to frame up the traditional uh, tenets of uh, conventional warfare? How how has warfare always traditionally been executed? Well, let me just say, in the, I think in the popular imagination, we can all kind of get that Omaha Beach. Mm-hmm. model of, of what a large combat operation looks like, gathering of mass forces, overwhelming firepower, attacking a fixed geographic point, you know, punching through enemy lines with uh, both the will of the infantry and firepower of artillery and naval guns, penetrating inland, having a big logistical tail to support that, and winning a pretty con- kind of conventional battle. Um, and we're certainly seeing some of those kind of battles going on in the Ukraine. Uh, but there's a lot of other activity as well. A- any thoughts from uh, your side, Sean, as you've uh, been looking at this issue too over the course of your career? Yeah, yeah. I think the uh, I think as we talk a little bit more about you know what makes it different in hybrid, I'll, I'll have more to add. But I think the uh, I, I agree. You know, Mike Mike has you know more than more than adequately described you know what I think is in the popular imagination and we see some of that as well in the imagery that comes out of war uh you know today even hybrid war if we want to describe Ukraine as that it it clearly has moved into 
what from my perspective is traditional warfare at the same time and so we see images of traditional warfare of refugees of you know um you know trees without their tops of buildings that have been bombed of bodies all the things that remind us of what war uh really is at the end of the day but i'll stop there and go back to you john because i know we want to dive into what makes hybrid hybrid yeah and and i'll i'll just add and and maybe mike you can comment on this a little bit too when we do planning for combat operations uh, we have a whole series of things that we go through to plan how we're going to carry out an attack on the enemy or even a defensive uh, fight uh, as the enemy's coming at us, uh, phase lines, uh, branches and sequels, uh, branch plans in case uh, something goes wrong or sequel in case you do break through, uh, catastrophic success, as we say, <laughs> and you look for new opportunities to exploit weaknesses in the enemy's uh, front. Yeah. Uh, so those are the kind of things that, uh, I mean, anything you want to say about that, Mike? You're, you were an infantry and artillery guy. You know a lot more about yeah, ground, I mean, ground I think, combat I than I ever will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that kind of battle where you break, you know, a breakthrough meeting engagement where you fight a, a conventional force, defeat it, and then break behind them and maneuver, outmaneuver them and, and win the field, right? They are either driven from the battlefield, they withdraw, uh, or you annihilate them. You know, some, somebody's principles of war includes annihilation. Yeah. Right. Um, but that kind of three to one overmatch ratio that people use as a planning tool, that you, these, these kind of rough bromides of the calculus, but those are all kind of conventional warfighting tools, but there's a much bigger battle space, of course. Right. And a lot of people don't, uh, don't I, I've said this before on the show, uh, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Uh, the Russians might have been well served to think a little bit more about their own logistics tale for the Ukraine operation. But uh, most people don't realize it's like a 10 to 1 uh, tail to tooth ratio in most combat operations. Uh, only one out of every 10 soldiers or Marines or whatever is up there in the front uh, fighting the enemy. The rest of it is all support mechanisms, making sure that they get the ammunition and the medical supplies and the food and the water and whatnot, the fuel that they need to carry carry out those operations in a conventional fight. So now I think we have sort of an, a reference in our heads about what traditional warfare sort of looks like and how it's executed. Let's talk a little bit about how hybrid warfare is different. Uh, which of you would like to kind of kick off and talk to us a little bit about why it's different to this hybrid warfare approach? I, I might start with that, Mike, if you want to, unless you want to jump in. So, you know, the short list, I think to, first of all, we, we, already alluded to some of this when we started off is this lack of a definition, right? It's that, that lack of a definition that allows for activity in the space that makes things interesting intellectually, but also makes things quite difficult to combat uh, and on the countering side of it. And tied to that is this deniability is increased. So in this sort of overall cloud of confusion, not only about the definition, but about, you know, as it's happening, uh, it, as with cyber as well, it, a successful hybrid operation may not be observed by a target, right, until it's complete. And that includes those who are internationally observing it. So we've all heard about like little green men and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. these concepts. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But there, there's this intentional muddying, which makes things very difficult for people uh, who are otherwise astute observers to be able to look at this space and say, aha, this is evidence of conflict. This is evidence of right an act of war. This is evidence of use of force, and so that that space uh, is is I think the key. These are key definitional points, and then I'd say so it counts on this blurring of different concepts of warfare as well, and different concepts of information operations, et cetera, to allow it, and that's the central challenge. 
So from my perspective. Yeah, just to further that, you know, there is there is disagreement over the use of the term, say, hybrid warfare to talk about uh, activities short of something like formal war and hybrid warfare as part of a, of a conventional war. And, and I think we're seeing that line really blurred right now where you've got in the Ukraine both activities going on at the same time. It's not you move from one to another. Um, and that, that kind of debate was there in the literature well before this, and it kind of remains unresolved. And I think that's why some countries don't use the term hybrid warfare. They use hybrid threats. Hmm. Um, some countries like the term hybrid war, as opposed to hybrid warfare. It's quite interesting how that, that divvies up. But irregular me, warfare. Irregular warfare. To me, yeah. it, it really is forms of uh, struggle where a state is very willfully, you know, trying to attack the will of another party using a whole series of means that are short of, of uh, armed hostility. There might be violence, there might be intimidation, there might be all sorts of activities we've seen for centuries of corruption, elite capture, uh, information operations going from you know the yellow journalism of the 19th century to kind of uh, cyber communications and, and so on. But a very, there's, there's a, there has to be a sense of a design of a hand behind it doing it on purpose with a willful intent to either undermine the will of an opponent um, or, or gain their way short of war and maybe set the conditions for a successful war. Yeah, this this goes all the way back. I mean, we're, we we end up talking about Sun Tzu. We end up talking about Clausewitz. We end up, it's all the touchstones, you know, that you're familiar with, John, and that I'm, many of the listeners, I'm sure, uh, you know, have on their on their bookshelves now uh, or maybe in front of them. These, these are still here. Uh, so there is a both something is new and nothing is new problem all together in, in hybrid. And so, you know, Mike, I think has done a, a, a best job that I've seen thus far of anybody describing uh, what it is that we're talking about. So, so it, it sounds to me, uh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when we used to talk about denial and deception operations, uh, yeah. is this sort of denial and deception operations done using modern technological capabilities in some regards? Uh, flooding the infosphere with misinformation or disinformation or, you know, maybe it's truth, but it catches your attention in one area while you're accomplishing something in another area. And it's either done prior to hostilities or in conjunction with a hostile action, uh, a, a full-blown offensive. Is that, is that, do I sort of have that right? Am I close? I, I think there's something to that. I think these, the, there's, a piece of this, which is the technological opportunity that is is available. So there's the technology renewing interest in what otherwise would have been may, maybe more tried and true concepts described differently than hybrid. Uh, and then as well, technology giving, uh, I'd say, cover essentially at the end of the day for other opportunities as well. So there's, it's both we're, we we become interested in it, I think, because of some of the things that have happened, the shifts that have happened in, in the technological space. So uh, then that includes some of the terms that you you know describe and the concepts you described, John. So misinformation, disinformation, information operations being a big, big chunk of this, but not the only. Yeah. So the technology is a big enabler, and it's been you know uh, harnessed on purpose with malintent, mm. and getting people to agree that there's actually malintent and design behind it is, is problematic because people don't want to see certain things for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but, you know, if you, if you look at, at say what Russia has shut off in the past couple of weeks and what China regularly bans, um, 
why do they shut down those lines of communications? Because they see the value of those tools and the power of those tools. Uh, but our, you know, they're open to our people to use them all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems to me, as I'm looking at this, and, and the two of you are going to be the experts on this, but uh, that hybrid warfare has really been applied uh, to some extent anyway with Putin's advance, not just into Ukraine over the last two, two weeks, but his assaults into Georgia in 2008, his uh, cyber attack on Estonia, even before then, uh, his annexation of the Crimea, the little green men problem that you just mentioned, uh, Sean, and even his investment of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, before he just recently recognized them and, and officially seized them with military force. Uh, has Putin been carrying out hybrid warfare for well over a decade now? Is that, I mean, that's is that what's really been going on? So, you know, what's in a name? So the Russians say they don't do hybrid warfare. It's a Western term. And they accuse the West of using hybrid warfare and responsible for all those color revolutions, making their lives uncomfortable. Um, or by saying that, uh, you know, the uh, the Internet is a weapon of the CIA, to quote Putin, you know, for example. So these are these are thoughts along that line. Yeah. So there's clearly been some design to what Russia has been doing, uh, how they exactly class it, I think, is is debatable. Um, you know, we had the, the term, the Grasimov doctrine, yeah. uh, came out a few years ago. The writer who actually wrote that said, actually, I didn't mean that. I just made that up because it's a catchy title. Um, <laughs> but it, it seems to explain what the Russians are doing by capturing observed behavior, right? We don't have a nice uh, touchstone of exactly how Russia sees this all being pulled together. At least I haven't seen one. Okay. Anything to add to that, uh, Sean? No, I no, I agree. I mean, it's uh, it, it, this is a uh, there's a bit of a quantum problem, a measurement problem here, uh, where yeah. you know we we see it, uh, we see it in action, uh, and we attempt to measure it, but uh, I don't think there's a there's an adequate theory uh, of hybrid at this point. Okay. I'm going to have more questions on that. i got to do a quick uh, quick break here. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Sean Costigan and Dr. Mike Hennessy, and we're talking about the concept of hybrid warfare and how it might be used in today's conflicts. Uh, let, let's drill down a little bit more into the hybrid warfare thing. Can you... So you've been studying this, both of you, for a while now. Uh, can you outline a sequence of events for how hybrid warfare might be executed? Uh, we can use either the events of Ukraine, or, or if you wish, or, or we can use this as a theoretical approach for how hybrid warfare works. Either way, I think is fine. It'll it'll still deliver to our listeners the, the conceptually what we're talking about here. And I, I'm sure I'm going to have some follow-up questions as we go through this uh, this question. So I don't know if one of you wants to get starts start us off mike you want to jump on it we we've <laughs> we've conceived of uh you know a way to describe it uh, that's a portion of the cybersecurity, uh, rather the hybrid curriculum uh that we're working on right now but uh definitely a work in progress sure but nonetheless you know i think there's i think we have a few steps not that we're suggesting you should follow these steps if you want to uh, engage in hybrid warfare <laughs> yourself that's a different business but uh you know just conceptually to describe it mike do you want to you want to start or yeah, yeah so you know, I think the Russian intervention in 2014 into Ukraine, yeah. those little green men gave us some indication of the transition from just politically undermining a situation to exploiting it through force, mm -hmm. and which was the big wake-up call, I think, for NATO, that you not just only had a lot of political argument and political factions coming to the fore, but they were wedded with things like... Uh, 
you know, a motorcycle gang in Russian colors racing forward to capture uh, key road junctures. Uh, people appearing not to be in Russian uniforms, but in Russian uniforms without insignia, mysteriously o- overnight and claiming kind of no nationality. Mm-hmm. So that kind of uh, continuity from low-level political agitation and destabilization to armed intervention through both proxy forces and conventional forces, it kind of shows that kind of spectrum of behavior that everybody fears. But I think more broadly, you have to think about hybrid warfare as, you know, we can think of kind of tactical targets where you might might get that set up. But the activity of, of, um, of creating social fissures or harnessing social fissures or deepening social fissures, undermining the will for cohesive response, for people to have a clear picture that they're actually under threat mm-hmm. because there are multiple voices saying, well, there's no real threat. It's just mm-hmm. investment. They're just uh, buying some land. They're just, uh, you know, it's They're a good buying advertising. that we're dealing with. Right. Uh, the advertising, uh, you know, they want to be our friends. It's uh, life is normal and we should just carry on and not be afraid. Yes. So those are all part and parcel of, of some of these behaviors. And so the undermining is not just at the immediate local audience, but quite broadly. So, That's right. you know, the efforts to destabilize public support for NATO intervention is taking place not just in Ukraine and in Poland, but in France, in the United States, in Canada, uh, around the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and this absent, morning about Spanish sorry, media is, is getting yeah. lots of feed out of Latin America that is is full of the Russian story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and absent uh, you know a uh, cohesive description of of hybrid, uh, we we point to examples, and uh, again, I'm going to point to Russia as as a very fine student of uh, the fissures in our society. So we've seen this, and I imagine on your show too, John, you've explored this, you know, multiple times, but when, uh, you know, an outfit like the troll farm in St. Petersburg spends a lot of time trying to figure out where are the fissures and they have maps and they have, they got demographic data and they look at it and say, you know, what is it that we can use and how can we undermine even a response uh, to allow ourselves the space to operate and they might not understand the overall picture of how uh, the, the intention might be to make it so difficult for another state to even have a cohesive response internally that it may be difficult for them to respond externally uh, to a threat or support a partner or an ally when it, when it comes about. And so part of this sort of like giant cloud of, of confusion is intentional uh, to create the space to operate uh, and to undermine the international order as we have it. And so that's, that's my perspective on it. And that includes information operations at a, at, at a level that uh, may look very uh, innocuous and may look very benign, but uh, taken in their totality are quite effective at undermining our will to be able to make a response. And uh, another example that I give there, and again, we're going to point to Russia, but is, uh, you know, the, inclusion of our of, of the television sh- uh, uh station rt in mm. many of the networks and then uh its subsequent removal later on after the ukraine crisis but to look at rt it is complicated because rt obviously could uh have the possibility of having been a, a good station but at the same time i think is widely recognized by u.s uh you know officials as having been essentially a propaganda tool it's the same for uh europe in general and so european stations have pulled them off the air yeah. Right. They don't they're not there anymore. And there's a reason for that. And that's after a decade more, uh, a decade plus of polluting 
and and effectively creating controversy and uh, creating divisions that make it difficult for states to be able to respond. So, yeah, I, I, that's yeah. actually uh, I, Sean. I think you nailed it. I, you know, I've been kind of watching that over the past decade with with RT and. Uh, their alignment with whatever the Kremlin uh, <laughs> latest statements are was really amazing and their ability to sort of get inside our uh, societies in the West to undermine uh, confidence in our government and sow distrust between us as citizens. Uh, talking about the, the work of the troll farm, sounds to me like uh, the Internet uh, is a pretty important tool when it comes to this idea of how you execute hybrid warfare. I might even suggest that part of this is, uh, to some extent, a covert action, uh, as we traditionally understand covert action uh, influence operations uh, using uh, the power of uh, of the infosphere through through the web. Is that am I am I close on this, uh, Mike Kennedy? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, it's it's a a tool that can be used for subversion. It's a transmission belt for dissonant voices. And, you know, if you think about war and clarity, it aids adding to, it adds to the fog and fog causes hesitation and lack of clarity and lack of response. And your opponent, if they've done that, has succeeded. So we use this term yeah, in the and, middle. Oh, go ahead, John. Sorry. Right, no, no, I'm sorry, John. Yeah, you see that also this is a, you know, an, an example of uh, measuring by response. So if Russia looks at it or, or China or others and looks at the open Internet as a threat. Right. They also look at it as an opportunity. The mm. threat aspect of it is evident when they do things like create a sovereign Internet. So that's because of the fear that they understand that they've encoded as in their own actions, in my estimation, through the exploitation of various information channels uh, to undermine the enemy. They look around and say they this is they want to make sure there's no jujitsu here, that this doesn't come <laughs> back and yeah. you know get them. Yeah. So they're going to do these things. And we're we're seeing it in real time now that notion that we're going to cut off services to make sure that you're not going to be, you won't have access to our populations and to, uh, but you also see a lot of this is fear-based, John, and I think we'll probably describe, you know, some of that a bit more. But if you look at how quickly uh, Russia acted in Kazakhstan, I believe that's largely fear-based Yeah, that they, they looked around and said, we have to do something as quickly as possible to quell dissent mm -hmm. because you're only what, two or three days away from losing power in one of these color color revolutions that he's yeah. so fearful of. And so yeah. that's, that's the wide, wide picture on this that I think really comes back down to the inf influence operations, as you say, the covert operations and the other possibilities that are here that they use against us. Uh, you know, with great aplomb. Yeah. So if we know that the uh, Internet is so vital, uh, I think a lot, and you, the two of you probably were watching this same as I was, the anticipation was that when the Russians launched their offensive into Ukraine, that the Ukrainians would lose their Internet, that the Russians would take down the Internet. And that has not happened. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on that? I mean, what? I mean, if, the, if yeah. the Russians have this idea of the importance of flooding the infosphere with information and then maybe cutting off the ability for your opponent to communicate, uh, why didn't they do more to try and take down the Ukrainian Internet? There's well, so many questions about so many the questions conduct of the, of the <laughs> yeah. invasion. It's such a strange type of operation that they've launched, with, given the size of the country, relatively small numbers against an almost equally matched, you know, the Russian formal armies, like 270,000 troops, Yeah, 270,000 troops. Um, 
so is it is it a capacity is it a vision is there redundancy that the ukrainians built over since 2014 they learned a lot from the experience in 2014 yep and they learned uh, about across the, the georgian experience too yeah yeah right um, so perhaps they built redundant systems. Systems hard to, to shut down, but uh, you know, reading stories about Russians using captured cell phones so they can communicate because they're secure communications. They're not secure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the yeah. other, the the really interesting thing here, from my perspective too, is like the they basically ceded the space, in my estimation, to uh, TikTokers and to you know others you know who uh, you know are able to much more effectively maneuver in social media space and so you know there's this there's this image that we've presented of the russians you know over over time being you know exceedingly capable the, the greatest students of uh you know the divisions that we have and all the you know weaknesses that we have and they're going to continue to exploit them and then as you say it seems to all fall flat strangely mm-hmm. in, in and either maybe that was because of the surprises that happen in conflict where you look at it and say you maybe they expected it to go very quickly and they didn't even think they needed to do x y and z but by the time you end up where we are now which is you 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 know uh, the youth of ukraine uh giving a tiktok tutorial on how to start a russian tank that's been mired in the mud <laughs> you you get the you get or uh benny hill set to uh you know the benny hill's theme song uh set to a, a, a ukrainian farmer moving a tank uh you know with a tractor you end up with uh you know uh this sort of this proposition which is how is it in fact, that the Russians supposedly, you know, who are at the vanguard of all of these things, basically ceded this territory and have lost, in my estimation, the information operations space almost completely uh, for now. So that's it's and that, I don't think there's an easy answer, but it's well, uh, that, you, at, at least in the West, right? Yeah, at least in kudos, the West in the English press. But yes. kudos the to the Ukrainians. Right. Kudos to the Ukrainians uh, for having the the noose and the capability to be able to maintain uh, this space, uh, because otherwise... Who knows what would be happening right now? Yeah, I think it's fascinating if you take a look at some of the news coverage that's come out of Ukraine, the fact that just ordinary Ukrainian citizens have gotten together in basements where they still have Internet connectivity and they are running the tables on the Russians on uh, countering the disinformation operations and and really undermining Russian morale in many regards by getting us so much truthful information out across the Web. I'll, I'll add a couple other concepts for you that I'd, I'd like you guys to address uh, we know that uh, Elon Musk uh, jumped in on this and, and wanted to get uh, Starlink uh, terminals uh, seated all over Ukraine to make sure that they had continuous coverage. And we also know that uh, when things started, the assumption was that the Russians were going to go in and start hacking into Ukrainian systems and whatnot. And Microsoft got engaged in this whole effort to try and make sure that things stayed secure. As part of this whole challenge with the the hybrid warfare area, that it's really even private companies that are, that become engaged in actual conflict operations. Is that is that what the new world is teaching us about being connected to the web? Well, I mean, the on the cyber side, I'll, I'll just take that briefly. I mean, Microsoft sure. has had a an advanced effort over the years, having learned the hard way, right? Having been you know, Microsoft being a, instrumental to so much of the modern infrastructure that we all deal with globally that. They've learned the hard way that they, in fact, are on the on the vanguard. They, in fact, are the sentinels for so much, and, and they're the solution in their own in their own way. So there's a, a statecraft element to it, but there's also just a very practical reality, which is uh, that we described early on in the program, which is who's going to do anything about this? Yeah. If if not you, if you're not going to defend your own space, and I, you know, obviously Microsoft doesn't have you know armed forces here, but they're very 
very clear to be thinking about where they need to be securing uh, the network broadly, mm-hmm. because again, uh, an impact like solar winds, you yeah. know, would have you know a impact across the entire internet. So recklessness somewhere in this system, and the Russians have shown themselves to be very reckless in in many ways uh, in cyberspace. Will have impact across uh, many of the other platforms, and so uh, and uh, for all of us, all the way down to the individual user. So I'd start there, and that's so it's a recognition of practicality. I think that leads Microsoft and Google and others to really have a, a, but there is this bleeding of lines where, you know, who, who has responsibility for national security interests? Well, it's the state at the end of the day, in my estimation, and not corporations, but corporations have a, a vanguard sentinel role in addition to a practical role uh, for themselves and their, their, and for their constituents or their customers in this instance. So. This is kind of a new and interesting space, right? The size of some of our corporations, you know, Apple cutting off Apple Pay mm-hmm. in Russia, for instance. Um, strategic effect? Not really, but interesting that a company has taken that position in a war that actually doesn't involve them. Yeah. Right? yeah. So because these new transnational corporations that are, are what? Acting as, as referees and arbiters. Yeah. Although, yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that also, you know, in effect that didn't they have to if 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 there were going to be a variety of banking measures et cetera et cetera they have to it 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 may look good as well in some instances sure so you know yeah. you don't you don't want to be on the wrong side of history as it were so. so it sounds to me uh based on what we've been talking about so far this morning we got about fifteen minutes left on the show uh that this hybrid warfare is really it's the exercise of statecraft using all forms of modern national power. Uh, in, in doing things, you know, really out of the box, uh, cyber uh, operations, media manipulation, those kinds of things. Uh, so we've seen that sort of the practical application or or abject failure, <laughs> to, however you want to look at it, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine and some of these areas. Uh, maybe we should swing over to the uh, to the Indo Pacific theater and think about this from the context of a. Uh, uh, China trying to seize Taiwan kind of an operation. Uh, China is a significantly more powerful country than 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 Russia. They've uh, they've been really doing a lot of research, development, testing, and evaluation on some really high end technology capabilities. Uh, I think they have a much more cohesive approach to how they view uh, the, their uh, national security uh, apparatus. Uh, what what might that look like from a hybrid warfare concept uh, or a hybrid operations concept if China were to initiate an operation to seize Taiwan? What would, what what might we see coming as the early stages, and then once things really kick off, what, what do you think? So I hope to be in Taiwan in the fall. It was supposed to be their last fall, so hopefully it's still free Taiwan in the fall. The you know, we spent a lot of time looking at the kind of uh, maritime dimension of, of kind of hybrid warfare that, sure. that uh, China seems to engage in using uh, a series of forces that are not military forces, just its fishing fleet, you mm-hmm. know, anchoring off the coast of the Philippines and, and not budging from disputed waters, laying claim to territory and then installing military installations, despite some international rulings and despite a clear contest of the claim. Uh, using its Coast Guard in innovative ways to intimidate others. You know, they built a very large Coast Guard ship last year with a very strengthened bow. So it's mm-hmm. a large ship with a strong bow. So it can kind of bump other ships because in maritime law, big ships are given way by little ships. Mm-hmm. And they've got the means now to kind of push you out of the way. So, you know, they've got a, a ship with big shoulders. 
they did that on purpose yeah to to contest something um so so that's going on all the time in the in the uh in the across the pacific and particularly around the the um uh, Taiwan, but but down in the South China Sea as well, right? Against Vietnam, against the Philippines, against a bunch of small states that have uh, different claims. But I just, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, there were riots two weeks ago in Nepal. Yeah. And you think, what's going on in Nepal? Why are there riots? Because America is giving several hundred million dollars of aid to build an infrastructure. What's behind the riots? I'd argue there that there's there's Chinese influence in that society, which is not necessarily anti-American in, in the grand scheme of things, but very specifically anti-American in the Nepal because it's seen as China's neighbor. I- influenced by China and Myanmar right now, too, uh, in support of the yeah. military junta. Sean, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, yeah, what, if, yeah, if China no, were think, to initiate know, something against Taiwan, what, what, would, what, would, what should we be looking for? Well, you know, I, I, coming to mind, you know, that several, several ideas, but I wanted to talk about Hong Kong for a moment because sure. I think some there are some lessons there yeah. about about the response to uh, essentially you you could call it a hybrid takeover uh, the the use of various forces that uh, short of uh, the um, I guess the use of force or, or armed combat uh, you see how the population of Hong Kong responded with varieties of uh, protests and uh, that that looked like they were productive in some in some way but actually. Uh, information technology again, in my estimation, plays an incredible role. And the Chinese again have been very good students at doing things like facial recognition, at doing things like arresting leadership, at doing things like so despite all of the uh, efforts that the protesters, in my estimation, came came up with, and very clever, uh, you know, est- uh, efforts like uh, using umbrellas to make sure drones weren't, you know, uh, watching them overhead, et cetera, et cetera. We see all these things playing out, but. Um, the the frightening prospect is that uh, that China has very good control uh, and and very good ideas about how to control populations through information technology and that I think uh, played out in Hong Kong and I wouldn't be surprised you know if uh, you know uh, through uh, through aggression from the Chinese on uh, Taiwan we'd see the same uh, you know playing out there so I'd want to start there. Um, the other piece that I talk about is we, you know, this may be near and dear to you, John, but is GPS spoofing has been very mm-hmm. interesting, you know, as a concept too. this idea that you could mess around with uh, with with civilian civilian signals, right? Ultimately, military signals, but they have been made in civilian hands that uh, we're all dependent on and alter uh, ever so slightly uh, the, the space to create disasters, which would allow for other things to happen. So you could imagine uh, a variety of provocations that could occur through uh, uh, created accidents, in, in, estim- in my estimation. So, you know, that's all well short of talking about what would happen in Taiwan. And I know, you know, John, you're, you, you're, you know a lot more about Taiwan than I do. So perhaps you, you want to give us your, you know, your ideas here and we can banter back and forth on Mike knows about it much better than I do. So I'll stop there. Well, what I would say, just, just, you know, I think all three of us know this, and probably a lot of our uh, listeners have been tuned into this too. The Chinese have been doing uh, a, a tremendous job gathering data from all around the world. Yeah. Uh, they are really trying to operationalize the concept of big data and how that can be used to, to, their, to their advantage. Um, certainly, there's an inextricable economic link between Taiwan and, and mainland China. Uh, I wouldn't imagine uh, that the mainland Chinese, uh, the Beijing government, would want to lose uh, that uh, crown jewel of economic opportunity that Taiwan is. 
uh, but certainly they don't. I mean, it's been it's been stated for many many decades that they want to unify all of China. So it's just a question of I think most people are thinking when, not if, uh, at this mm-hmm. point. There's so, a there's an industrial edge there too that I'd want yeah. to just put a an earmark, uh, you know, an earworm for us all to think about, which is that you know in this past in the pandemic we saw how important semiconductors were uh, and uh, shortages, and Taiwan clearly has an advantage not just in capacity but in uh, technological innovation mm-hmm. that China just doesn't have. Uh, acquiring that through uh, aggression wouldn't be um, you know out of my mind for uh, for thinking that. I think there are others who have thought the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would think they're also quite content for a while to use the, you know, there's a lot of internal dissent within Taiwan. There's sure. always a block. The population would be happy to unify tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they could win this at the polls. It's one of those, those long-term things the, the turn that's gone on in China being more draconian has, has dampened that ardor within Taiwan. Um, but, you know, silver tongues for a couple generations might do it. The, the deep emotional attachment in China is so visceral and real. It's not just party. I was at a, maybe over a decade ago, I was at a conference, two Chinese colonels stood up. Imagine two American colonels saying this, stood up in public forum and said, if our government ever ceded its claim to Taiwan, we would overthrow the government. <laughs> We're talking about their government. Wow. Yeah, I, I would tell you, uh, Mike, and maybe you, you and I have seen some of the same things. Uh, maybe a decade or 15 years ago even, uh, certainly about a decade ago, there were a lot of young people in Taiwan who really wanted to connect with their Chinese heritage, their roots on the mainland. Yeah. And like you said, over time, they might have succeeded in doing this. But Xi Jinping has really, I think, turned people off to that with actions in the Western provinces and certainly uh, in Hong Kong and some of the other things that they're doing in the first island chain. So I, I think both of you probably know Professor uh, Raymond Kuo. Uh, I had him on here. We had a lengthy conversation about Chinese activity in the South China Sea. We certainly talked a little bit about Taiwan as well. We did not get into the concept of hybrid warfare uh, with regard to China, though. So let me ask you the the million-dollar question in the few minutes that we have left. You've both studied this concept of hybrid warfare. How do you deter hybrid warfare, and if necessary, how do you defeat it? Let's finish on a strong note. I'm hearing silence. So, I think, this is terrifying. Yeah, I think a, a, a valuable <laughs> concept that Sean and I have kicked about is it's not a cyber, actually. They use the term advanced persistent threat, that uh, cybersecurity has to be consing- con, you know, con- conceived around this concept of advanced persistent threats. And, and I think if you recognize that maybe we have a class of, of world systems and great power uh, interaction where there's an advanced persistent threat from several very large powers, whose way of life is inimical to ours, and they are willfully trying to undercut us. Um, and so that's across the board. And so the response has to be coordinated across the board. And part of it is imagined as actually a threat. I, I think there's, there's absolutely, and I think that stripping deniability is a key here. And the United States, I think, was, was very, uh, and, and European allies as well, was very good at doing that with Russia very early on, although there was some doubt, obviously, about the intelligence reports, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about what the Biden administration did and the uh, intelligence community in the United States did in terms of exposing what we knew, uh, not necessarily methods, right? There are no methods were exposed, right. but rather right. what we knew to be probable. That was really key, I think, for, uh, and that that's, I think, the number one uh, move uh, that you can make in this space is uh, strip deniability and make sure people know what's likely to happen. And if you do that, then you can imagine measures and countermeasures and all the different things that you can do to respond. So that's that's your first 
that's your first step. Uh, take away the cover. Would you say that the diplomatic engagement on the part of the allies and the liberal democracies on the world around the world ahead of this, uh, what we knew was going to be an invasion, really made a big difference in in solidifying the response and stripping away the the falsehoods? Yeah, I think it can't be done without the you know I'm I'm, I'm jaded and biased on this, but I think it can't be done without the partners and allies uh, aspect. Of, you know, we we need people to work together and understand what these threats are and what. What, what their threats may be to themselves ultimately, because this isn't just an over there problem. Like so many of these problems, this is a problem that affects us very directly. It might affect you in Ottawa, may, it might affect us in the United States. There are impacts that are being uh, played out uh, for all of us. And so to the extent that we can get clarity, that's, that's where I'd start. True. Uh, you know, F- FDR used the phrase uh, to make the world safe for democracy. And it, it meant more than just being a democracy. It meant, being an act of democracy, that it's a, it's a precious thing. It can be destroyed. There are forces that do not like democratic states. And democratic states have to recognize that they act or, you know, they act in concert to preserve democracy, uh, or they are just passive targets. So we, and I think too, on that, sorry, John, there, there are, you know, partners, uh, internally, domestically, depending on, you know, where you are that also have poorly understood the, the order that has enabled them to get good, essentially. And that's yeah. in the post-World War II order that helped us all get to a, a position, I think, of strength. And that includes uh, Russia and China to some extent as well. And yet uh, the, they uh, perhaps resent or uh, want to alter that order for their own opportunity. And uh, that might be, you know, that's uh, quite 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 frightening in some regards so yeah well, i think we've definitely uh we we've known for probably a decade now that the post world war 2 international security framework has been challenged by certain countries around the world but i think with the invasion of, of ukraine uh it is sort of an open conflict now between uh, the autocracies and the democracies over what the world order is going to look like going forward. So we have a we have a huge fight yeah. ahead of us. Uh, we, we we have time for one last question. I promised our audience I'd ask this one. Uh, Dr. Hennessy, grandson of an Irish revolutionary, what's the story there? <laughs> well, I'll keep it short. He had played a small role in uh, you know the liberation of Ireland after 800 years of uh, British occupation. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, just give you a, a sense, uh, I don't know much because he didn't say very much, but I know he spent a lot of time in prison. It was hybrid. Strike. <laughs> yeah. It was hybrid war. Uh, but he was one of, of uh, 15,000 members of the IRA who received a decoration uh, for being in combat during the Civil War. Mm. Um, and it just gives you a sense of the scale. The British Army just decided not to be overly oppressive at a certain point in history against really a pretty small force. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I'm afraid we've reached the end of our show today. This has been great. Thank you for the discussion. Uh, Dr. Mike Hennessy, Professor Sean Costigan, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thank you, John. Really thank appreciate you. it. Great Thanks pleasure. for having us. So nice that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week, folks. Uh, we're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. 
Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.